hail and well met, traveller. No, 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 no. <clears throat> hail and well met, traveller. No, 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 no. Good day, traveller. No, absolutely not. I'll find it. I'll find it. Hail and well met, traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Andy Fling. I am one-third of the team at TumbleDye Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to simulate the arc and tension of a three-act story within the framework of a tabletop RPG. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. Faithful listeners, this episode I will be talking with a good old friend of mine, Eric Doucette. Eric and I studied theater in college together, have been thick as thieves ever since, and share a love of tabletop gaming. Of particular interest to the podcast are his journeys the past several years as a DM, his prolific world building, and the loose but entertaining homebrew rule set he's developed. Let's take a listen. My good and constant friend, Eric Doucette. Hi. So Eric and I go way back, like almost 30 years, I think, right? It's a long time. It's almost 30 at this point, yes. Eric, why don't you give a brief introduction of yourself and then tell us how you started as a youngster playing role-playing games? Uh, yeah, well, my name's Eric Doucette, and I have, for the last few years, uh, been running a gaming group based on a world I created, um, and I, I, I had not played role-playing games in a very long time, probably almost 20 years. Um, there was this gap. Maybe college was the last time I had played. I first started playing when I was around... I want to say maybe 11 or 12, I was in a Bradley's and I looked over and I saw uh, this red and blue box and it, it just caught me, the dragon on the box. I had no idea what it was. I was intrigued and I had recently that year saw a, a movie, I think it was called Wizards and Monsters with Tom Hanks. Do you, do you remember that movie? Oh, um, Mazes and Monsters. Mazes yes. and Monsters, yeah. That was during the uh, the Satanic Panic, right? And this this so so like that same year I had seen that movie. I really didn't know anything about role playing games, and it appeared like this box was uh, this game. And I I, I found a couple of um, uh, uh, friends, uh, you know, who were kindred spirits, and we stumbled our way through trying to play. Um, little did I know I had grabbed the blue box over the red box, which was the expert edition. <laughs> so I had to go back to Bradley's and get the basic. And then it started to make sense. And throughout, um, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade and into high school, um, I was hooked on uh, playing. And, you know, I loved being the DM, but I also loved uh, uh, playing um, all, a wide range of characters. And I guess that was, this was the mid to late 80s so that's still first edition 
and just and then I think just as second edition was coming out, I was playing for a couple more years, and then I I hadn't played in a very long time. So that was my intro to D and D. For for those who don't live in New Hampshire, I'm I'm assuming because I've actually never I don't remember Bradley's. That's yeah. a department store. I take. Yeah, it? I'm sorry. It's like a Kmart. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I know the the game of which you speak that you've been running for a while now, because I've played a character or two in it myself, um, and this is Mid Realm. Yeah, the the name uh, has significance, and the kingdom where the story takes place is a place called Midrealm, which I, I, I like to say that when I started playing again, it's because you had invited me to do a game, and there was a handful of other people, and I had been doing uh, community theater for about seven or eight years, was taking a break from that, and I was looking for a way to get my... Um, sort of creative needs met and playing D&D again uh, with you and your crew for a few sessions really introduced me to the game again. And I loved it. It, it, It's so much like doing improv Mm -hmm. for theater Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, rolling dice and unlike seventh grade, and now I can drink some whiskey while I play. And uh, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot more fun now. So when, you know, we were, we were doing a session every once in a while, I don't know if you remember, but it was sort of off and on. It wasn't scheduled. This is like with with uh, the group that you guys met at my house. Yeah, it was. It was like for some reason it ended up being eleven people per session. I think there were a lot. I think you DM'd one. That's when I met Kylan, and people were using my house. And but then you know we we nothing was really set and scheduled. And I had come off of seven or eight years of doing theater where I was doing, you know, re- regular shows and setting rehearsals. So I said, you know, I'm gonna try to start a game. So I got four people together um, Mm -hmm. and we, for about a year, met pretty regularly, once or twice a month. And and we started playing D&D. But see, I I was using the term D&D as just sort of this generic term for role-playing and not really aware of the degree to which all these variations of role-playing games had come out. Which I'm still, I'm still pretty ignorant of. You had your uh, your homebrew house rules. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't even using terms like homebrew. I didn't even know what that was. I mean, only recently have I have I picked up that term. But I, I pretty much, you know, expected to play D and D. So when I was going to DM, I went out and bought the newest version, fifth edition. Mm. Totally unaware that the fifth edition is 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 very uh, uh, magic heavy. <laughs> Yes, and my world is not, um, which I didn't let it throw me too much because I, I always went in knowing that I was I, I wanted to play a game with a group of people who wanted to get creative, and we would make decisions around story, mm-hmm. and that the rules were there to sort of help us and and be guidelines. So I, I I've never been like a stickler for rules when it comes to that. What's that phrase? That crunch versus fluff. I'm heavy on the fluff and uh, <laughs> light on the crunch. I, as as the DM, had to figure out how do I have the fifth edition sort of work in my world. And then things started to change once I started to let more people into the group. The whole dynamic and how I decided I was going to go about setting up adventures in mid-realm changed significantly for the better. Yeah, yeah. 
during the world building, as Midrealm began to grow and grow, what would you say are your major influences and where did uh, your inspiration come from? Well, first I should say that the term Midrealm is a nod to a, uh, a place that used to exist in Ware, New Hampshire, which now still may be a, a paintball park, yeah. but it was a, a place that actually had the name Midrealm, and it was LARPing before anybody knew what LARPing was. Um, <laughs> and after, in, in, you know, when I got to high school, there were a couple of upperclassmen that took me under their wing, and they were big gaming geeks, and they had heard about this place in Ware called Midrealm. And we went there, um, and I know the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronisms, they also have one of their kingdoms, which I think is in the northeast of the U.S. I'm not sure. That's another organization that uses the term mid-realm. So mid-realm was when me and my friends would game just on our own. We would we, we just kept that name. So when I went to build my world and create a kingdom, as sort of a nod to my childhood, I, I used the term mid-realm, and then only after did I have to sort of justify, you know, why that kingdom has that name now. And from there, I started to slowly but surely create a geography around this kingdom, which grew mm-hmm. exponentially. And one thing led to another, and now I've spent about four years, and I've, I've created a lot of this world. <laughs> I had no idea. That's where it came from. So I know that you love making maps and writing books in the script of dwarves. Um, you're, you are a prop-heavy DM, that is for sure. And I'm, I'm wondering what kind of tools you use, both digital and analog, to, to do your world building and, and create these, these items and maps and whatnot. Yeah, I do love maps. I, um, I, I have used and love a program called Incarnate, mm. which I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will, will have heard of. So I have everything from you know cities and towns, and uh, most of my world is is all mapped out in Incarnate. So I definitely rely on that. Um, but I am prop heavy. That's the theater side of me. So you know <laughs> it'll be typical in a game for me to sort of hand a book that is handwritten by me. Uh, for for players to sort of pour over and try to look for clues in, so I use the uh, the creation of these small books as sort of ways for me as the world builder to get rooted in in the history and the culture. Like I'm very aware that my players may not have any awareness of the deep history that you know I have going in my mind, but for me, I want to create that so in the now of the game i i already have fleshed all this out so that when i go forward with other players in other areas and in other regions i'm not uh starting from scratch and creating so i guess i'm setting about in the first few years to sort of do all the heavy lifting and create backgrounds and places that i have players whose characters have yet to go so as a dungeon master, what would you say is your process? What kind of style, what is a scenario where you are preparing for a game? When I prepare for a session, 
what I like to do is have a broad outline of possible directions, particularly in the beginning of a campaign for my players. I want to give the players a lot of agency, but I think it's important, particularly in the beginning, whether it's the beginning of a campaign or whether it's the beginning of that player starting to play in in the group to get them to have a good understanding of the culture and the nature of this world. Mm. And I want them to be able to contribute to the creation of the world, but I don't want them to change some fundamentals. For instance, I, I've chosen to create a world that's that's like pre-industrial and what we would call very close to medieval as far as technology. But I've always been fascinated with reading and studying and, and teaching. I am a teacher, so studying about how civilizations run up against each other and how they interact with each other. That's a um, an interest of mine. I've made that a part of my world. So part of playing in mid-realm is being in a world that's very homogenous. So it's not only that it's extremely low magic, but humans are just amongst other humans. And for non-human uh, species to be in their presence is anywhere on the spectrum from disturbing to, you know, so fascinating because it's the first time they've ever seen them. A very human-centric, low magic kind of world that you're building. In, in the early sessions for the first year and a half, it was only human characters and it was me trying to build up mid-realm until eventually I got to the point where I started playing with new players who were all dwarves mm -hmm. in, in another area of the world. Right before COVID-19, I started playing with a fae culture that is on the edge as well. So you have these different civilizations. And so building the culture of the dwarfkin, which is the term that the Arunmen, the humans use, I want the players who are playing the dwarves to contribute to the culture. So I sort of gave them parameters. I made an outline of the kingdom and the history and, and sort of the practices, but I, I invite them to add to that in, in the same way that for the first couple of years, all my players who were playing humans were adding to mid-realms culture as humans. Tell us the scheduling process that you must go through with all the people who are involved in your games. Tell me how you organize that and how many people are part of this, uh, this adventure. Uh, so I started with four players and we played for about a year and I wanted to expand it. And I had found quite a few other people who wanted to kind of jump in. So what I ended up getting was another four or five people. And this is anywhere from experienced gamers to friends who had never played before. And what I found was pretty soon I had about eight or nine people. You know, I had this one session. It was kind of like a session zero, mm -hmm. you know, and we talked about how we would go forward. Uh, so we didn't have a, a regular game, but we talked about the characters in the kingdom and how I would break this group of, I don't know, it was eight to 10 people like in half. And, and that's when I came up with the idea of everybody having two characters. And depending on people's scheduling, was uh, who they would play in, in, in the region. And I started to schedule these players the way that, you know, a stage manager would schedule actors in a show. What's that app people use? Um, 
Oh, doodle? Yeah, doodle. doodle. So I, I started sending people doodles and I started, you know, cross-referencing availability. And it was working and it still works, but I kept getting people who wanted to join. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, now we're on like year four. I don't know. I lost track. Uh, every day is Tuesday in COVID. But, um, <laughs> you know, and, and we have about 21 players. Oh, wow. And I have a Facebook group called Adventures in Mid-Realm. And I have 41 people that follow. And I have a big chart in my basement. And uh, everybody has two characters. I have managed successfully so far to have really fun sessions with people who over time, they have ended up playing not with everybody, but with a lot of the other people. And depending on the region of this kingdom will depend on the nature of the game. There's a city called Nisham, which is which a lot of uh, rogue and roguish type characters play. Mm -hmm. And when I'm DMing those type of sessions, we have people who are in a guild called the Finders Guild. Players come to the table and I have a menu of anywhere from six to eight things uh, that they can choose for the guild to do. And usually we can wrap up that in one night. Nice. You know, the other the other side of the kingdom is for longer play, you know, anywhere from three to six sessions to play out a story for a character. And then it gets creative, right? So I have uh, five people and I'll try to play them three or four times in a row. But if somebody's not there, you just need to come up with a, a story reason. And that that's on me. Come up with a reason why they're not there. Yeah. Now, something that you do that I think is absolutely brilliant as a dungeon master is um, tell us about the party that you try and throw on an, at least an annual basis. Yes, First Feast. So First Feast is a, is a holiday in Mid-Realm, in my world, and I had made reference to it a couple of times. And then they after the first, I think it was, by year two, by the end of year two, I had a lot of players. So I wanted them all to be in one place at one time, which is really hard. It's nearly impossible. I, I do have to say, before I, I say more about First Feast, there were a couple of sessions where I didn't have everybody, but I had a lot of people. <laughs> uh, so, so one of my favorite sessions, we had Kylan's character was marrying another player's character. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so I designed an entire session that was a wedding, a Northman wedding. <laughs> and uh, I know that I have some friends who were playing who do theater and improv anyway. So I knew they would really be good if I just at the day of asked them to do something, you know, like give a speech or mm -hmm. sing a song or, and, and it was just a wonderful moment for all of the players i think we had at least a dozen of us and we did you know we did a little bit of the game session in there but it was sort of a hybrid of like a social gathering and a D, D session i think that's where the light bulb went off and i said you know what this was really good for all the players mm -hmm. to be in one place and i want to get everybody here but i don't see pulling off an actual D, &D session so i had a just a party at my house called first feast but i encouraged not only everybody to come, but I, I said, you know, bring bring a plus one who may not role play or have any idea what this D&D &D thing is. And, you know, just so that they can come and meet the other people that you do this with, that went off 
uh, very well, and I decided that it would just be an annual event. We were two months away from doing our third first feast, but COVID happened, and uh, yeah. During the party, you have games that they play where they, they gain points that can be spent on things. Yes, so I want to make it fun. I want to make it a fun social gathering. So there are different things that people who are at the party can do mm-hmm. that they can earn. Um, they actually earn gold coins, <laughs> uh, but they're also fun activities. So if they're bringing somebody to First Feast, but they're not really a player uh, in my group, they can still do something. And, you know, they, I have other prizes for them as well. But I have a menu of items for players who have earned uh, uh, gold coins over the course of the night <laughs> that they cash in for cards that I've laminated that give them, say, uh, a reroll. Anything from like, you know, a reroll or a plus one weapon mm. or, you know, and then the, the big prizes are like you level up, like you go up an entire level. Uh, so all, all kinds of stuff that, and they really like that. I only did it a little bit the first first feast but people really liked it so i went all out the second time i'll do a plug for diversions the gaming store in portsmouth which is a wonderful it's my local gaming store so you know they gave a uh, gift certificate well we have a lottery and and stuff like that and uh and 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 the things people have to do are simply like one thing might be hey you know what find somebody that you haven't gamed with that much and tell them about something interesting that happened in one of the sessions this year. And it's basically encouraging people to sort of dialogue and, and meet with each other and talk a little bit about Midrealm. Or, or one might say, you know, tell, uh, find somebody and tell them the first time you role played. Nice. So as I mentioned before, I have played a character in Midrealm only once or twice. He was a bumbling cleric. Um, who really loved oranges. I don't know where that came from, but for some reason, my character just loved oranges and was constantly on a quest for them. But I remember one session, it was with a larger group, and, and you had the whole table set up and all the minis and everything. And I rolled a natural one, which means I needed to roll on your dreaded <laughs> criti- critical failure table. I call it the fun chart. But my players don't think it's fun. No. It when you look at the faces of your players <laughs> when you pull out the fun chart, do they look like they're having fun? Oh no, we we, we all laugh, but yeah, yeah they're yeah. they're terrified. They're terrified. I think my character do you remember my character's name? Because I it was so long ago I can't remember his name. Oh my god, no. Um, I don't. But, uh, it, uh, it'll come to us. Yeah. Because you haven't um, played it so long. Yeah. It's, it's been a while. Um, but I believe I rolled such on your table that my character lost his nose. Oh, God. Isn't that right? I think that was it. Yeah, I do remember that. So that's actually a little crunchy. Um, how you, how you pull out the table. Is that part of your style? Yeah. So I, I had that, um, there it wasn't too many sessions in maybe after maybe the second session of people rolling a one, I didn't, I didn't really have a knowledge about what, you know, the fifth edition rules say, but I also like to be as creative as possible. So I said, you know what, I'm going to make this fun. And sometimes rolling a one just means whatever you wanted to do, you couldn't do, but nothing bad happens to you all the way to, um, you know, instant death, which is, you know, very, you know, extremely hard to do. Yeah. Um, 
and I found a couple of die. I don't know what they're they're to some other board game. They're six-sided die, but there are symbols on them. And I decided to match the rolling of symbol combinations to various things that happen. You know, so one could be like, you know, you broke your collarbone. You can't use your weapon arm for the remainder of the session, which puts you at a disadvantage. I wanted to put people in situations where it, it might mean that other players' characters had to step up and compensate, okay. you know, or simply I wanted to have the one sometimes have the effect of changing the combat. So, you know, it could just mean that you drop your weapon, right? but it could also mean you're stunned for, and I think one of them says you're stunned for one D four rounds of combat, which could be a lot, which means other people need to be around to defend you. Otherwise somebody in combat might, might be able to gain advantage on you. I've also, I also though have a chart if you roll a 20. So yeah, because after I made the first one, I said, you know, this is just not going to be fun. Uh, unless, unless there's a counterweight. So, and my players, let me, let me tell you, they love it when they roll a 20. So, you know, they, I mean, yeah, they don't like the one, but they love it when they roll a 20. So it balances out. Oh yeah. I mean, so, so in the same way that there's, I think a one in a hundred chance that you might be beheaded, I call it beheading, but it's, you know, you, you can choose your way of death. It could be, I mean, you could just instantly kill your enemy or you stun them or really good things happen. And I have found, you know, you play with a group of people enough, you learn the culture of that game. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of my gaming style is to bring non-traditional things in, into the game and have people interact with that. And when people roll a one or a 20, it's like the game is put on pause while everybody just sort of like hoops and hollers and, <laughs> and then, you know, they roll and then there's, there's a, there's just silence and they all look at me to sort of read off the chart of what happens. So one of the other, I mean, so aside from, you know, that the fun chart, uh, there's things like, uh, I think in the first or se- I think I tried this out in this first or second session of play ever, because I, I really did want it to be different. Yeah. I wanted to get these players to interact. So rather than roll to see if they could unlock a trap, I had this game called Archimedes, and it's basically um, a wooded board that sort of balances with the placement of marbles. Oh, okay. And it's an actual game. It's an ancient game that you can play. So I told I, I put it out in the center of the table, and I, I told the players, you know, the basic rules, and I've played it a lot. And I said, look, there are four mines against me. Let's play this out. There's a good chance you'll beat me, but you have to strategize. In order to get past the lock on the door, they had to beat me. Right. I'll insert quick little challenges that will have the players work together, and all four or five players represent that one character uh, trying to accomplish the task rather than just rolling a die and getting a success or a failure. Very nice. So you feel like you have a, a healthy balance between letting the dice make decisions and you coming up with creative responses and reactions and whatnot to uh, to how the players play. I do. And to tell you the truth, a lot of, well, almost all of the critical decisions don't involve die mm. 
So it's the interaction they may have with uh, an NPC. Whereas, you know, when I, when I was playing as a kid, it would just be a question of making a charisma roll, mm-hmm. you know, to see the NPC's response. Whereas now in building this kingdom, there are many NPCs that my characters have come across. They've developed relationships with them. So there's a given positive or negative reaction. And in the way that I outline possible directions, mm-hmm. I like the players to have the agency of deciding in that given session what their focus is going to be. And then I feel like it's my role to insert um, some twists and turns and how they respond to that almost always surprises me meaning the decisions they take, you know, they want to go and and they come up with really creative ways to solve problems, which is, you know, the fun of the, um, of the whole project of, of sitting down and role-playing aside from the laughs. All right. Absolutely. The laughs and the whiskey, the laughs and the whiskey. Yeah. And, (laughs) and, and I think the die uh, are there for those, for those intense combat moments. Um, And even now, and the, like it's constantly changing. I am constantly trying to figure out more efficient and better ways to do the the crunchy stuff and you know slowly but surely moving away from feeling rooted in fifth edition though still using the term d and d and you know so sometimes the die comes in play but but a lot of times those critical decisions are how the how the players decide so when your players throw twists at you that you weren't expecting, do you feel like you've become better and better? I mean, especially as someone with a theater background, do you feel um, at the game table you've become better and better at coming up with things on the fly? Or do you do you like to also turn it around and say, um, okay, I wasn't expecting this. What do you think happens? Or do you, do you usually like to keep a hold on the reins and come up with things on the fly. Yeah, I, I I have not thrown it back at the players and asked them, okay. you know, the results, unless it's the result, like there are times if they roll well or they roll really well, I, you know, I hand over the reins and I say, okay, why don't you play out or describe to everybody how you want to, you know, do this final blow or how you're going to uh, make this uh, heroic gesture. But, a lot of times if they're surprising me with their decisions, I'm, I'm honest when I tell them, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. And I, I need a, you know, I need a few seconds. And honestly, it's, it's very, very much like being on stage. Yeah. And the, the other players you're on stage with go in a direction and it's your role to be, you know, you know, that old game. Yes. And. Yes. And it's all those years of training of yes and, yes and, yes and. And then you just, you start to roll with it. And sometimes I may go, you know what? I need I need a die to kind of nudge me in one direction or the other. And I'll make a quick roll sure. to decide whether or not there's a positive or negative response. But I, I never liked when I was a player, even, at, even as a kid, I never liked the gotcha games. Mm. You know, uh, it's not my role to try to uh, uh, set up impediments for the for the players it's all about we're, we're all players my job as the dm is to just you know be the storyteller but we're all still playing the game 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, I, I never liked the dynamic of players needing to ask permission too much to do anything of me, you know, or me being this all powerful God at the table who could smite them at any time. That, I, that, that was never enjoyable to me as a player. So that's not enjoyable to me as a, as a, uh, as the person running the game. So as the DM, I like, I, I really enjoy the story and not knowing where it's going to go, but I like, I like creating the frame. And I think if you like creating the framework of a world or a city or a story, uh, and you want it filled in by other people, then you should gravitate toward, um, DMing, even if you've never tried it before, you'll learn your own style and your players learn, you know, different DMs. And I think they play differently depending on the DM. And if they like you, they'll come back to the table. Yeah. So it, it occurred to me that you were, um, the balance that you've said is you you don't like an adversarial role as the dm you you don't want to have a you versus the players kind of dynamic at the table but you, you do keep the danger at a level where it's challenging and um there's tension with things like the critical failure table and all the terrible things that can happen and you can just say hey the, the dice decided it wasn't me I'm not your enemy. The dice are. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, you're absolutely right. So you can't be successful setting up that adversarial relationship, but you also need to build trust with the players so that there's always that benefit of the doubt factor. They always know that when the decision finally comes down and somebody does have to make a final decision, and that's also part of the role of being controller of the story here, the DM, is that if it could go one way or the other and it's upon me to make the decision and there's a time where I make a decision that the player disagrees with, my goal as the DM is that there's nobody sitting at that table who doesn't trust 100% that in my mind I made the fairest decision. Right. They may not they may not agree with it, but they know that I'm I'm very fair and you know they're going to they're going to play with me in the future and there're going to be many many times I make a decision in their favor. And those decisions are rare. And also they're, you know, they're fun because just like in real life, out of failure or tragedy come other things, other uh, other opportunities, uh, other adventures. Absolutely, yeah. To wrap up, tell us what the future of Midrealm is to you. What what do you have in store in the future? From my point of view, now that I've fleshed out these three civilizations and I've only begun to have them rub up against each other, they, they're they going to start to interact more. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a point in human history when people of different city-states saw other people who were not part of that city-state as sort of subhuman and, and, and not one of their own. And... The uh, I've always been fascinated with what, you know at at what point do these city states start seeing themselves as uh, one people in the face of larger threats? Hmm. I, I do have these players that have only been playing in, amongst the dwarves and players that are playing in the Fey world and playing in the human world, and um, and now I want them to start interacting more. The 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 characters to start interacting more, having built uh, these 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 civilizations up and it'll be interesting for me well yeah i mean the the fact that you're the type of dm who allows for players to add to the story and to the world i'm sure there's the the dynamic of bringing those races 
together or against each other or however it turns out the the players are going to come up with stuff that you didn't even imagine. Oh, it was it was great. Can I just add uh, one of my favorite interactions was I finally had a session where four players who had only ever played humans were playing with four of my players who had only ever played dwarves and the humans and the dwarves were meeting for the first time and they had, you know, distinct things that the players had created for their cultures and how they should interact and and it was very interesting from my point of view to see this like clash of civilizations. It, it was great. It was one of my favorite sessions. Ah, oh, that's great. And do you feel like it, it turned out relatively peaceful? It got tense, but of course, you know, that, that was, I, I, I didn't set about to have them conflict with one another, but they were certainly suspicious of each other. And then of course, that was my role to, to insert a, uh, a common enemy that allowed for them to sort of work together. And, and they had a couple of, we, I had a couple of sessions with all of those players and it, it worked out very well. So I'm sure we'll see more of that. Do you feel that Midrealm is going to remain solely on your game table or do you feel like it's something that you want to share with more people? Well, I have done a lot of creative writing basing the story out of this world. So that's that's one thing I'm sort of doing individually as my own project, uh, which may or may not turn into a book, but I, I, I love writing it. And I don't have any big plans to have Midrealm embraced by the wider world. However, with that said, I would love if when I finally finished writing the, you know, the the, the players uh, books, I have I have a player's guide to Dwarvendom and a player's guide to Midrealm. And if any of these players at some point, you know, want to continue to play uh, and DM, I, I think I'd, I'd feel flattered. I'm looking forward to getting back to the table with, with all of y'all. It was a blast the few times I played in this world, and I'd, I'd love to return. We, we love to have you. I mean, uh, it's, it, it was a great time. We can make that happen. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Well, you're welcome. I had a blast. Thanks again to Eric, and thank you for joining me today. Before we go, I'd like to read an Apple podcast review we received from Ba129. The RPG novice that I am, I appreciate the hosts making me feel comfortable by doling out wide-ranging topics and bite-sized pieces to digest. While not all his subjects are things I might ever have a direct link to, I found he relates the topic to situations I found myself in while gaming, or in the real world. For me, this podcast feels well-produced, and I've enjoyed it enough to keep coming back. Five stars may be generous, as there is always room for improvement, but I also don't want to dissuade folks from giving it a try. I look forward to hearing, getting, more from it. Thank you, Bar129, for your kind words. We are always happy to share whatever knowledge and advice we have regarding the hobby, so feel free to contact us in the future if we can be helpful. If you've enjoyed Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, Podchaser, or tweet us at TumbleDye. I'll read any reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDye Games, LLC, our intro music is What Lies Beyond, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vince Vept. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash Vince Vept. That's V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Additional music 
by Audrey Sitkov and Andy Ray. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Andy Fling. Nothing travels faster than the speed of light, with the possible exception of bad news, which obeys its own special laws. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.